So uh, last semester, and by the way, thank you for coming. Last semester, I did a uh, TEDx uh, talk. And uh, this one is going to be based on that. I think it was a, uh, an interesting idea and a topic that I have been thinking about. And it's something that I have been talking to some of my colleagues about you know, the nature of what is happening with the music, uh, classical music, what we know as classical or maybe art music now in the 21st century and how this is either an evolution from or maybe a reaction from the music of the 20th century. Of course, this is going to require a little bit of backtracking, so I'm going to be moving all the way back to the end of the 18th century so that we have an understanding of what we know as the common practice. So if you go to any music history book and you research what the common practice is, so this is going to be pretty much a crash course on classical music, the common practice, then into the 20th century and see what happened with classical music, the, the tradition of classical music in the 20th century, and what is happening right now. Okay, so. Now the reason I wanna play this is that it gives us, or it may provide us with an insight, this little exhibit I'm gonna be playing, an insight on what people are using classical music or contemporary music for, and how it is actually being approached in a way that it is not really separate from what we can see as maybe populist or pop music. Of course, you know, the question mark is, it's obvious there. Now, once we go through that you know, crash course on the history of classical music, which is going to be really a very superficial overview of what we may understand as classical music, then this is hopefully going to make sense. This is actually coming from a, it's a symphonic work by an American composer. It's just that it was used for some reason, whoever was making this video game trailer, they discovered this piece and they thought, this is really very cool, let's make a remix out of that, right? So the original piece, as you'll hear later on, doesn't have all the electronic drums and all that. But the thing is that how could they actually figure out and find this composition by a serious American composer, Pulitzer Prize winning composer, and use it for a video game trailer, of all things. Okay, so here we have starting with one of the pillars of what we know as the common practice. Now, the common practice is this period and also a combination of styles that happened between the second half of the 18th century all the way to the beginning of the 20th century. And we call it the common practice because there was a common musical language. And composers were writing in using common genres such as the symphony, the concerto, the string quartet, the sonata that you, know, you all have heard those terms, even if you don't understand what they are, you know that there is such a thing as a symphony, 
And you may be familiar with the concept of a string quartet, right? And the sonata, yes, you know, we know that term. So composers between those bookends, you know, for about 150 years, they were really just writing music in that particular style and writing music using those genres. And then, of course, we have Mozart. Now, Mozart is not the beginning. There were some composers before that, like Haydn. But Mozart is really one of the big pillars of this that we know as a common practice. So let's listen to a little bit of his music. Okay, and then another really very important pillar of the common practice, Beethoven. By the way, it's important that at this time you look at the dates. So I included dates for all the different composers so that you can see the chronology of the common practice. So Beethoven, of course, is a little bit after uh, Mozart. Um, and there was, of course, you know, some overlap. So this is from the Ninth Symphony. Oops. So of course, if you ask most people out there, what do you think classical music is, their idea of classical music is going to be something like that. It's music that is going to be approachable, but at the same time has these connotations of being classical. At the same time, it's music that is accessible to our ear. So it's music that is really immediately ple uh, is pleasant, right? And there is, uh, there is lyrical is the melodies we can follow, and also the harmonies, the combination of different notes is something that we can follow. So it, we don't, you don't need to really get an education in, in, you know, in music to be able to appreciate this. Maybe to understand it, perhaps, but to be able to appreciate this. It's music that you can simply just sit down and just let it come to you, and the melodies and the harmonies are going to be accessible. Now, there are a number of reasons for this, and this that is coming up next is going to be very important for the foundations for what comes after that. Now, this is something that is just part of nature. Whenever you have a, an elastic body, such as the string of a piano, the string of a guitar, the string of a violin, also the vocal cords, and also a trombone that is vibrating, that object is going to produce a very loud tone that we know as the fundamental. That is the tone that you can hear. For example, if I sing a note, bam, you can hear that tone, and that we call the fundamental. So the whole thing is vibrating as a whole, producing that fundamental. At the same time, that object, object is going to be vibrating into additional sections, producing other tones. And we normally call those the overtones. The concept of an overtone is a little bit tricky because overtones can be things beyond this. So we also call this the series of harmonics. Also the series of partials, which actually makes more sense because you have the fundamental as a whole and then you have the partials. Now even if you don't know how to read this, you can see that the distance 
This is a, you know, in terms of height, the higher you go, the higher the frequency is going to be, the higher the tone. And you can see how the distance between the notes as you go up in the series of harmonics will actually get smaller and smaller and smaller. And the proportion is, as a matter of fact, mathematical. The fundamental vibrates as a whole, and then the first harmonic is going to be multiplied by two. So if the fundamental produces a frequency of 50, the first harmonic is going to be, of course, 100. And then by three, by four, by five, and so on. Here you have a diagram that gives you a visualization of what happened when you have something vibrating. You can see, of course, at the top, the fundamental, then you have the first harmonic, and then the second harmonic, and so on. Okay, and this is something that is just happening by nature. Okay, so it is just part of the acoustics of any vibrating object. And as a matter of fact, I have this little toy that gives you a very good demonstration of this. You've seen, you know, this whirlies. Um, so what is going to happen is that as soon as I start spinning this, air will start to be sucked into the tube, right? And the problem is that in order to get the fundamental, I will have to spin this really very, very slow so there is not enough energy going into the tube to produce the fundamental. If I blow, however, into this, and I know this is almost impossible to hear. Okay, so this is the fundamental, right? And then I'm going to start spinning and if I can control the speed, I will get the first harmonic, which is going to be twice the frequency. So if this is the fundamental, the first harmonic should be bum, bum. Okay, so here we go. That's the first harmonic. And now a little bit faster to get the second harmonic. And now faster. Okay? So now you know the... <laughs> so you know at least the basics of the science behind this. Now, you may have heard the term uh, overtone singing or harmonic singing. And there are a few ways of doing that. One way is to produce one frequency. You sing one frequency, and then you modulate between different vocal sounds to get the different harmonics. So, and I always tell, you know, whenever I do a demonstration like this for my students, I warn them that it is embarrassing because I'm just going to be, you know, bellowing out one tone and then just doing I O A O O O, right? But hopefully, using my hand as an indicator, you may be able to hear those other frequencies which are going to be produced. First of all by the, uh, the vocal cords, and then of course, a, all the mechanism that is going to be producing and modulating that sound. Do So, by the way, this is how we humans can hear 
the different words that we can understand between, between the different vowels. The brain is processing all this information very, very quickly. So even if you talk in a monotone way, you, the, the brain is still able to tell the difference between a, e, e, o, u, and so on. Just by processing that information that apparently we're, most of us are not really aware of. So the brain is actually able to process that information very, very quickly. So to the best of our understanding, there has to be some relationship between how we process and how we understand language and how humans at some point develop the ability to create and appreciate music. Okay? Now, tonality, this concept of tonality where you have one tone which is going to be more important than the others, and all of the other notes are going to be revolving around that one, is really based on this. Okay, so the fundamental, now let's actually label the notes by name. So this is a C, that's another C, this is another C, and then seven is another C. This one is a G, this is number two, five is also a G, and then four is an E. You can see that the closer you get to the fundamental, the louder the harmonics are going to be, and you can see how, how many Cs are very close to the fundamental. So it's not just in the, in the fundamental, but those very, very strong, important harmonics are also reinforcing that one. And then, number two and five, that's what we call the dominant, and the dominant is going to be balancing out the tonic. So the foundations of what we know as tonality is built in there, okay? And of course, we still don't know exactly what happened. At some point, humans started to use this ability to process sound information, and tonality started to emerge. And tonality is really at the very foundation of the common practice. By the way, here you have an animation that hopefully can give you an idea of how the harmonics sort of work. So, of course, you have the fundamental, and now the first harmonic, the second harmonic. Okay, and that relationship also applies to the energy that is going to be produced by the different harmonics. So the higher you go in the harmonic series, normally those harmonics are going to have less energy because you have a smaller portion of the object vibrating. Okay, so let's continue with then the common practice. This is another very important figure for the, uh, the evolution of the common practice, Richard Wagner. And you can see, you know, I'm skipping, of course, so many names within the common practice that are important, but for time's sake, I really need to move on. However, it is an excellent example of what is happening approaching the end of the common practice. Okay, so again, very lyrical, extremely attractive music, really pleasant music, and at least to my ear, which I'm gonna, you know, my perception is that this is really gorgeous, beautiful music. 
right? You know, you may differ on your opinion, but at least it's a kind of music that you don't go like, I can't stand that. Now, Wagner is also important because he started to push the development of the common practice, not in a new direction, but in a certain direction, making the music more complex. I could use the term, you know, chromaticism. I don't know, you know, some of my colleagues, of course, you know, but I'm not going to really explain what that means. Just think of the complexity of the collection of notes that a composer can use, which is not apparent in this composition. You know, that portion that I selected is not a good representation of that. It's a representation of music that is really very lyrical and accessible. However, Wagner is at that point really leading the common practice into that direction, making the music more and more complex. And then you have this lineage of composers following through that they even push it farther. So here we have the Austrian composer Schoenberg, and you can see the dates. Now we have a composer that is really turn of the century. And he starts as a follower of Wagner. So his music at this point is going to sound very similar to the music of Wagner, just even more complex, maybe a little more, more angular. Now, the idea of tonality relies on simplicity. The, what we saw, that, that mathematical simplicity in the series of overtones, you know, the fundamental that you multiply by two, multiply by three, mathematically is already very simple. Tonality relies on that simplicity, so if you keep increasing the complexity of the music, you start slowly to degrade that stability of tonality. So we start to move into that borderline into atonality, what we know as atonality, that is the ability to make music not relying on tonality. The next piece I'm going to be playing is an example of that, and this is, is a milestone, not just for the music of Schoenberg, but for music of the 20th century, is decomposition and the particular point where Schoenberg decided to say, goodbye tonality, now I'm moving on. As a matter of fact, he was very mystical and he was superstitious, so he, the poem that he has for this composition says, I see planets from other galaxies or something like that. So it, for him, is I'm really moving into the next step. For Schoenberg, he really believed that the future of music was going to be a tonality. And once we get into that kind of music, then you can perhaps consider his idea of the future of music. He thought that maybe in the future, children were going to be singing atonal music in the player which of course, you know, now we're 100 years later, and I guess luckily, or maybe not, that didn't work out.
Sorry. Didn't know, no one stopped me. I'm playing the same thing. There you are. Thank you, John. So, I was so thirsty that I didn't pay attention to the music. I was just thinking water, 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 water. <laughs> okay, so this is the piece. Okay, so the music is still kind of accessible. You know, some people may go like, right, but otherwise it's not, not the kind of music that may sound too scary or anything like that. However, if I was to do an exercise that you can do actually with you know, children and you know, any person, try to find what you think the tonic is. You can play a composition. Maybe let's try that with Okay, so that note, it's actually the, what we call the tonic, it's the home base of the composition. So if you sing it, it feels like that is the point of departure, and that should be the point of arrival, and that's where really you achieve complete stability. Now, if you try to do that with the following piece, it may be a little bit harder. And of course, you know, I'm sure that maybe half of you will disagree, and that's exactly what is happening there, right? It's so difficult. Um, and then the next piece is going to be almost impossible. Even though the music still sounds familiar, to do the same exercise would be almost impossible. Okay, so at some points I could try to guess what they were, but I probably just get them wrong. 
course, you know, if I was to look at the score, I could do an analysis and spend two hours and you know, say, okay, so this is the tonic. And then I give that to a music theorist and, the, and he or she would probably say, well, no, that's not the tonic, it's the other tonic. And then you bring it to the composer and he said, no, no, that, this, this one is the tonic. So a lot of room for debate. Now, we're going to be then uh, moving on to um, his next milestone in Saint-Pierre-Rolle-Lunaire. And uh, it's not the first atonal composition that he wrote, and it's not the first atonal composition ever, ever written, but is at the very beginning of the 20th century, one of, one of the pillars of atonality. Not only that, composers were starting to explore expressionism in music, so the music is going to be bitter and angular, so it doesn't have that really very smooth flow of the music that we have heard to this point. Oh, and something else, this composition uses a, a technique where the singer is instructed to sing in between the notes. So it's always sliding in between the notes. So that's something else on top of this style that may be a little bit bizarre. By the way, how many of you do remember the old Tom and Jerry cartoons? You know, some of this music may sound a little bit familiar. And I picked uh, Tom and Jerry because, you know, for some reason, some of the episodes, they used music like this. There was um, just about 20 years ago, an American composer that we are gonna be talking about, he, he noticed the similarity. His story is that he was watching his children watch, watching a, a TV show, and I think you know, they were you know, watching some kind of cartoon, a Saturday morning or something like that, and he noticed, you know, well, that sounds like modern music from the early 20th century. He wrote a composition on the Chamber Symphony based on that idea. So he's you know, doing a, you know, an upside down take on modern music. So of course, most people when they listen to this, uh, they don't necessarily find this appealing, right? It may be very interesting, rhythmically it's very interesting, the harmonies are very interesting, and uh, for a composer like myself, you know, I really find this composition, I, or I would call this a masterpiece. Not just because of its importance in the history of music, but because how, of how it was crafted. Now the next composition is even, uh, even more, is even better known. Um, you may have heard of this, and if you have seen the, uh, the original Fantasia movie, the Disney movie, you know, and I'll talk about this in a second. <laughs> he really looks badass there, right?
right? But that piece is not completely atonal because that's a tonic right there, okay? But at least in some sections, he, he really went to the extreme of dissolving atonality. Um, before I try to maybe, you know, very briefly discuss, you know, what's the reason of that mugshot, um, <laughs> this composition is uh, well known, of course, because of the quality of the music, and it was happening at a certain uh, moment in time where composers, some composers were starting to dissolve tonality and experiment with rhythm, for example. You know, what that rhythmic structure that you heard, chun, 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 is very unusual, or at least it was very unusual at the time. And there was a riot during the first performance. According to what we know, the riot was mostly not because of the music, but because of the dancing of the choreography, which was by uh, Nijinsky. And Nijinsky, you know, in a classical ballet, you're supposed to look really very symmetrical and balanced and lightweight, right? So everything is going to be really like this. So you reduce your profile and you try to look really, very lightweight. He went completely the opposite way. So it was, you know, feet turn in and doing things like this and stomping on the ground. So apparently that's what really created the riot during the performance. Besides that the music really was strange to most people. There are witness accounts of some people actually standing and yelling, genius, genius, this is a masterpiece. And all the people was, you know, throwing stuff at them. Um, Schoenberg experienced similar situations in his music, and some of the riots were so violent that the police had to be called in, and musicians were fist fighting with the performers. Okay, so does anyone know the reason for this? Yeah? Exactly. That's exactly what happened. So Stravinsky, uh, he, uh, he, he, uh, he went in, into exile uh, because uh, of, the, uh, the, of the Russian Revolution. And then um, he, uh, he went to Switzerland and then to France, or was it the other way around? And eventually he ended up in the United States. And he, according to what we know, he was so grateful for the welcome that he received in the United States that he decided to do an arrangement of the national anthem. And uh, I'm not going to be the winner right now, but you can YouTube, you know, you can YouTube it if you want. And it's a beautiful arrangement, you know. And he just made some small adjustments that most people cannot even notice. You know, if you are trained and you know you train your ear, you can hear some little things that are like quirks for the arrangement. But just the fact that when they found out that he had made some alterations to the national anthem, they went and arrested him. <laughs> By the way, there is an arrangement, uh, it's a performance of this, of, of his version of the National Anthem, but done very, very slowly and all for a cappella choir by the Greg Smith singers. And it's the most beautiful thing you can imagine. You can hear all the harmonies and all the little things that he did, the care and the love that he put into that arrangement. Okay, so you are really going to love this piece. But before I play that, so what happened in, the, in between uh, 1912 and 1920, and 1922 more or less, is that as Schoenberg and some of his students like Wevern and Berg were exploring this kind of atonality, this kind of atonal music making, they found a problem. 
they encountered a problem, that they could no longer rely on the structure and the infrastructure of the common practice, which allowed for the creation of really large symphonies and large sonatas, and it relies on the structures of tonality. Now you don't have that anymore. So then you have to sort of like reinvent the wheel every time. So they were really scrambling around trying to find a way, a solution to secure a tonality. Because our ear is so driven into the nature of tonality that just by having a random collection of notes, you could have the illusion of tonality. And they were trying to fight that. They were trying to create music that would really on purpose sound atonal, that would completely deny atonality. So Schoenberg was one of three composers who came up with a system. And this is one of those bizarre coincidences in history, that three composers, uh, Hauer, Schoenberg, and Charles Ives in the United States, they came up with almost identical systems separately at, at the same time. Charles Ives, he was really into experimentation, so he wrote one piece using that system, and he said, oh, this is interesting, okay, let me move on. For Schoenberg, this was the solution. I can use this, and I can keep then writing atonal music. Now, what this system is, what this system does is, you take all of the notes that you have in the, in the piano, and you uh, treat each note as a number. And then you create a collection of notes, and that collection is going to contain all of the notes that you have in the piano. Okay? So, of course, you know, within the octave, but that's a technical term. And then you can use that as a row. So imagine a series of numbers, maybe zero, seven, six. So you have 12, and you're not going to be repeating any of those within that row. So maybe zero, zero would be the the departing point, the first note that you pick, and then maybe seven, six, five, eleven, and so on. And then you can use that row and you can move it around, you can invert it, you can mirror it, you can break it up in uh, different sections, and you can use those as Lego blocks that you can put together and you can rotate and you can permutate and you can stretch. So the music becomes much more mathematical. And this is what we know as serialism. And this is arguably the first fully 12-tone, that's the name of the technique that he came up with, composition. So now we are really starting to step away from what most people can really appreciate as nice, pleasant music. But again, for him, this was something that really, he really had to do. It was part of his role as a composer in the 20th century to keep moving forward and secure the place of atonality. Because for him, again, this was going to be the future of music. So now when I said before, imagine children in a play yard whistling something like that. <laughs> right? So that was his idea of what was going to happen in the future. 
Okay, here we have an even more extreme example of this, and here is not just a serialization of the different nodes, but you also apply mathematical order to the rhythms, how the nodes are going to be spaced, and also the density, how many nodes are going to be happening at a certain time. So you start to apply mathematical order to all of the different components and aspects of a composition. Okay, and the irony is that to most people this may sound as someone completely randomly just hammering the piano, right? And it's completely the opposite. Everything is, almost everything, is so carefully controlled. This kept moving in this direction to the point that composers had to start relying on computers because the music became so complex that it was almost impossible to be performed by any number of human players. And this is an example of that. There are stories of recording sessions of this composition where the musicians would only record one small portion, maybe three seconds of music. Did we get it right? Yes, okay, let's move on to the next portion. So it would take weeks to record a composition like this because of the immense complexity. Okay, now, while all of this was happening, there was always a stream of composers that remained much more traditional. Composers like Aaron Copland and Samuel Barber, you've heard some of those names. Um, if you've seen the movie Platoon, you know, the very beautiful music, the, the Adagio is by Samuel Barber, right? And it's a music that we really can, uh, we can feel connected to, unlike this kind of music. But this really became a dominant stream in the academia and in modern music. So if you were going to be a modern composer, modern composer in the 20th century, you would most likely be writing music like this. And you would be following these systems. So this really started to create that distancing, that separation between our audiences and composers. And of course, you get to the point where you have Milton Babbitt, the American composer and mathematician, that he wrote uh, an, an article, an essay, that he called the composer as specialist. And when the editor saw that, he said, okay, you know, I'm going to rename this. And he recalled the article, and he published the article under the title, Who Cares If You Listen? Because Babbitt was trying to say that in kind of like a polite way, and but the editor said, well, you know, I'm just, this is exactly what he means, you know. So you have the composer that you just do your thing, no matter how complex, no matter how unappealing it may be, you just do it because you feel that it is your responsibility and that is the future of music. And if people don't appreciate your music, that's not my problem. Because how could they understand? And here we have another example, John Cage, of course. This is a little bit different in that he 
he decided to go the opposite direction from that mathematical control, so it's really about improvisation. So the score is lines waving up and down with general instructions, and then you're allowed to improvise within the restriction of the score. Okay, so just a little bit more of this. Gunshots. Okay, so I am running out of time. I'm going to bypass this. Right, you don't mind, yes? <laughs> and this, let me play just a, li a little bit of this. I love this piece, by the way. I think it's a really fantastic composition. So of course, you, know, you can you know you can tell your children, okay, let's go, let's go to the concert. We're going to be listening to some Ligeti. Yay! <laughs> right? Okay, I'm going to. But this one is very similar to the other one. You know, the, the music is representing the uh, the the sonic violence of the uh, bombing of uh, Hiroshima. Okay, so here. Now, by the way, look at the date for that composition, 1960, and the composer, Pendereski, still alive, born in 1933. And then this next one, look at his date, born in 1935, only two years after, and then 1969, so within that decade. And listen to the difference between this one and the Ligeti that we heard before. So this almost came, came out of nowhere in the 1960s. And uh, people started to use the term minimalism, you know, because of the minimal amount of material that the composer uses. But there's also a return to simplicity and perhaps more importantly to tonality. It's a different approach to tonality, but there is this very strong return to tonality. Now, one of the reasons why we got to this technique that we know as minimalism, or maybe style, is because of this. Compositions such as this, which are really very experimental. And now it starts. So after a while, you, that you start to feel that, right? So this is one of the reasons composers started to rediscover tonality. Kind of like an accident, but also there's some influences coming from the East and also from Africa that they started to explore that and bring that into their own sense of modern music and experimental music. Here we have another composition by Steve Reich.
so it goes like this for another 10, 12, 15 minutes. I mean, you know, it changes, right, over time. But you can see that this is the kind of music that you can play to most young people, and they say, that's cool, that's really cool. And I can appreciate that. I feel there is a sense of pulse that I can follow, and there is this sense of tonality that I can connect to. So this is happening while at the same time some of the composers continue to experiment with atonality and more abstract music. Of course, you may know his name. And this is just a really tiny sample of this opera. You know, we're talking about a two-hour, I think it's two-hour composition. Um, and uh, you actually get to see uh, an actor dressed as Einstein playing the violin, playing that kind of music. It's really a very cool composition. Very strange opera. It's not the kind of opera that you would expect with singers just coming to the stage and you know, singing in line and telling you a story. It's more modular with little blocks of music. Now here then, we go back to Ligeti to see what the effect of composers like Terry Riley and Steve Reich and Philip Glass are already having on the stream of more experimental music. Ligeti, of course, he was really very much into any kind of music making, so he was not just limited to that. But now you can see that in the 1980s, his music really becomes very different. Oops. Let me bypass this one because this is the one I want to get to. All right? So, if you have good musical memory, okay, so the, the one I first play at the beginning. So that's really where it is coming from. So this is really a symphony. It's not called a symphony. Um, written in 1985. And John Adams, then he starts to take that foundation of minimalism, that return to the sense of very, a very strong sense of pulse, return to tonality, and maybe making the music either intentionally or by accident more accessible to general audiences. And he takes that back really into the tradition of classical music. So more melodies, music that really flows, structures, and a musical language that you can connect very easily with. Okay. And of course, music is not just like that. I want to play this in part because it won the uh, Pulitzer Prize in, uh, I think it was in 2006, the year after. Um, it's going to sound very, very different, but at the same time, there is 
an inherent sense of tonality to this music. So what is happening right now is that we have that stream of very complex experimental music with that other stream that is really coming back through minimalism. And they're joining together. So now we have, as we will see with the following examples, this joining of music that is ex experimental and improvisatory, while at the same time being fundamentally tonal and accessible. Okay, and this one for comparison. So if you go to a concert of new music, you know, don't expect everything to be just absolutely pleasant, right? You, know, you still have music which is extremely complex and is music that it may not be immediately accessible. However, it is improvisatory, it's experimental to some degree, and the foundations of tonality are there. Because of the complexity, you know, it may be almost impossible to tell. Um, this one won the uh, Pulitzer Prize either in 2008 or 2009. And uh, David Lang is a uh, very well-known American composer. He was one of the founders of the uh, Bang on a Can Festival, which is like you know, the big festival for, uh, for new music in the United States. Bang on a Can, of all names. <laughs> Another example, I'm playing right now Pulitzer Prize winning uh, compositions, first of all because of the, of the prominence of these compositions and the composers, but also because the Pulitzer Prize historically was always rewarding the extreme side of the academia, music that was really intentionally very complex, very cerebral, mathematical, and now we have this turn where this music is now becoming really the mainstream of the academia, at least in the United States. If you were to look at composers like uh, Gobada Ladina or um, Pender, well, Penderecki actually, he went in a completely different direction. Um, there are still some strongholds in Europe and in Latin America where they're still going into that stream of more experimental, angular, abstract music.
Okay, this piece is in between. So just give it some time. It really blooms into something really beautiful, or at least to my ear, beautiful. Let me bypass this one, even though it's one of my favorite compositions of recent years. And uh, this one is also a really gorgeous composition. We are really out of time, and I wanted to have you know, some time for questions. So I really wanted to play this one. This one uh, won the Pulitzer Prize 2012 or 2013, when uh, she was only 30 years old. And uh, she was a doctoral student. I, I would imagine if she graduated already. And it also won the Grammy, by the way, the CD for a best new classical composition, I believe. To the side. To the side. To the side, Ram. Through the middle To the side. To the side. To the side, Ram. Through the middle To the side. To the side. To the side. To the side. To the around. And around and around. And around To the side. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Through the midpoint. That's it.